clap. I'm not a clapper myself. <laughs> but it's okay to clap. It's okay to say amen, too. Where are you, Raul? <laughs> uh, amen, amen. Uh, we're going to go back to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue where we left off last week. Now, we're going to review, so don't lose heart. Those of you that weren't here last week, uh, we're going to review a little bit. If I can get my notes pulled up real quick. Once again, once again, notes are not ready. This time I have my device with me. As I get that ready, uh, I will tell you, uh, last night I got to I got to go to my 20-year high school reunion. My 20-year high school reunion, and so we got to see all these people. Uh, Aaron and I both went. Aaron knows some of these people because we started dating when I was still in high school, and. Um, uh, we got to hear about their lives, and we got to talk about ours, and, and come to find out, I believe of all the people that were there, we've been married the second longest. Uh, so we're approaching 16 uh, years of marriage in August. There's one, one girl that I graduated with that's been married longer. Um, but we were able to testify to God's grace and preserving us in that way. Uh, but furthermore... You know, we were able to, to think about, at the very least, the ways that God has kept us. And I think of the ways that God has, in those 20 years, made me so different than I was 20 years ago. And, you know, the, the, the beauty of it, I think, is that I get to look at you all and for seven plus years of that 20, you have been the instrument in God's hand to make me who I am. So I want you to understand that when we encounter texts like this, that me, the, the, the titled guy, Kyle, the titled guy, where is Kyle? Where are you sitting, Kyle? Oh, you're walking. The, the guys who are called pastor we're being shaped as disciples of Jesus as well. And so you, for those seven years plus, and many of you even longer than that, um, have been instrumental in making me look more like Jesus. And so for that, I'm thankful. And I hope that we open the text today and we start to see the, the mutual benefit of what goes on. Like, it's not just me telling you what you ought to believe about the Bible when I preach or cow, you know. It's, it's us doing our part in the overall responsibility of the church to present one another. In fact, he says everyone will get there. Present everyone. Fully mature is how it best reads. Fully mature in Christ. I got talking and I... Didn't pull up my file. Here we go. I want to remind you of our theme. Good stewardship of the gospel brings lasting transformation 
through divinely powered labor. Good stewardship of the gospel brings a lasting transformation through our divinely powered labor. And uh, Wesley, forgive me, I'm going backwards. Let's go back to the text and read. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24 through 29, Paul says to the Colossians, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Remember, that is mission, not atonement. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, that mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Okay, so good stewardship of the gospel brings lasting transformation through our divinely powered labor. We're going to quickly review. We broke down that statement into four parts. Good stewardship of the gospel brings lasting transformation through our divinely powered labor. And that's what we looked at with the text and Paul's words there to the Colossians. Now, we use that text, you recall, as a place to sort of jump off. And we want to address the question, what is the state of the church last week and this week? That's the main question. And so we're going beyond the text to ask a few more questions that I think just help us get the temperature. They help us um, assess better the state of the church. And honestly, I'm putting these questions before you because the way that you answer these questions has a lot to do with the state of the church. And so we began walking through those four parts of the definition or the, the, uh, the theme there. And then we began application. So moving forward with application, number one, we have a stewardship from God. We have a stewardship from God. I asked you the question, what is the state of our time? I also asked you the question, what is the state of our money? And pause right here. I know that sometimes in the church, people start asking these questions like, well, if the pastor's telling us to give, then I wonder, is he giving just like we're supposed to give? And so I will tell you, yes, I give to the church. And I'll even tell you, if you want to know how much I give, our treasurer has full freedom to let you see every bit of giving that your pastor gives to Cedar View Baptist Church. So if you're just itching to know, you can know. You can know. Uh, we talked about our giving. We talked about our giving being worshipful, sacrificial, practical and cheerful cheerful so today today i hope 
You didn't come back in here thinking absolutely no thoughts about your giving today. In fact, some of you right now, you're like, well, we were going to go eat lunch, which was probably going to cost us 60, 70 bucks. And instead today, as a sacrifice of worship, it's ramen for lunch. And that 60 or 70 goes to the Lord. Maybe that's what the Holy Spirit is impressing upon you. Now, I don't pretend to be the Holy Spirit. I'm just giving you a for instance. All right? We want to respond in obedience. If we're not responding to the word of God in obedience, then what in the world are we doing here? So we need to assess the state of our money, particularly our giving. Because you know, as we talked about last week, one of the quickest ways to your heart is through your wallet. You know what you worship by what your money goes to. Now, we want to keep moving. Uh, we want to keep moving, and I want you to keep that, that idea of toiling and struggling in your mind. You recall that word, struggling, is where we get our word, agony. So when Paul says at the end of this, for this I toil, struggling, he's saying, look, I'm in agony over you becoming what God intends you to be, what Jesus saved you to be. Keep that agony sort of in your mind. So moving forward, number two. Number two, we live upon the gospel of God. We live upon the gospel of God. Uh, I use the phrase gospel of God mainly because we learned that from 1 Thessalonians. You recall on several occasions, Paul referred to the gospel as the gospel of God. So, yeah, we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, but when we talk about the gospel of God, it reminds us that the good news of Christ's perfect life, his death and resurrection, was always the plan. It was always, from the beginning, we know what the Bible says, that he was slain before the foundation of the earth. Wow, what does that mean? It means God exists outside of time, and his gospel was planned before he even created time. We live upon the gospel of God. Now, last week we brought some applications saying the gospel is what sustained Paul. The gospel is what sustains us. So each day we remind ourselves of gospel truth. We remind one another of gospel truth. We live on this gospel. It's our lifeblood. It's our, remember, it's our food and drink. You know, when we come to the table for communion, what we're saying is the gospel is what saved me. Jesus' blood, his death, his resurrection is sufficient for me. And we proclaim that until he comes again. It's our lifeblood. By it, we both know Christ and we grow in him. So the gospel wasn't just good news on the day when you first heard it and repented and believed, and then you moved on to other stuff. No, the gospel is all day, every day, faith in Jesus until you breathe your last, and then that faith becomes sight. We live upon the gospel of God. So I'm going to ask the question here, what is the state of our souls? What is the state of our souls? The gospel reaches to the depths of who we are. What is the state of our souls? 
And today, it may feel like I'm all over the place with my topics. And some of this is just me um, throwing out there all the things that I desire for us as a church that I see in Scripture, and also considering some of the things that we do, maybe do well, and some of the things that we don't do very well. The state of our souls. What is the state of our souls? Part of our responsibility to one another, especially for pastors, is to care for the souls in the flock. Using the image of the flock, a guy named Timothy Whitmer writes of the church in our society, he says, the sheep are frustrated and discouraged because they are not receiving the care that they need and that the Lord requires that his shepherds provide. Many of them may be spiritually hungry or may have even begun to stray. That's his assessment. And I think that's a I think that's a safe, a conservative assessment of the church in our land. Now, that lack of soul care leads to poor church health. So if we're not healthy, spiritually, Christians, why would we expect the church to be healthy? We need that soul care. And yes, it is primarily the responsibility of pastors, but you all care for one another's souls through the constant interaction, the constant working of the body. Whitmer suggests four different ways to uh, care for souls, to uh, shepherd the flock especially. He says, you do this through knowing, feeding, leading, and protecting. Knowing, feeding, leading, and protecting. And again, this comes primarily from the under-shepherds, but it also happens among the flock. You remember, under-shepherds are also sheep. Pastors are also sheep. That's why Acts 20, when Paul is writing to the elders at Ephesus, he says to them, keep watch over yourselves and the flock of God. And that's why when Peter writes to elders in 1 Peter 5, he says, hey, you ought to be an example to the flock. You are a sheep as well. So we as sheep are always seeking to care for one another's souls well. You get to know one another. You get to point one another back to the word of God. In a number of ways, you can lead others toward better personal spiritual Health. You can help one another guard against the schemes of the enemy. But I'll ask you, I've been talking a lot about our responsibility to one another, and I think we miss that in the local church because we tend to individualize everything. Well, am I getting what I need? Am I growing? Am I being ministered to? Am I being fed? So switch all those around and say, am I doing this for others? But we don't want to neglect your personal state. What is the state of your soul? Are you living not on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God? Are you refreshed in the gospel on a regular basis? Is your soul nourished in the Lord? Do you feel safe spiritually because you're surrounded by these brothers and sisters and you also have the doctrinal protection of your pastors 
If there's anything lacking in these areas, what needs to change? And I'll turn it on my own ministry. I've been convicted about the, really, the chaos of pandemic that has continued. How everything has become disordered. And I really am not caring for certain souls well enough. But how can we shore up these weak areas in caring for souls? What do you need from your pastors? What do you need from one another? What do you need from that person that you know loves you dearly? So we need to ask the question, if we live upon the gospel of God, what is the state of our souls? Are we truly gospel people day in and day out? Second question, what is the state of our families? What is the state of our families? You've heard it said, as the family goes, so goes the church. And as the church goes, so goes society. Families are the building blocks of society. And there are a lot of things in the Christian life that we can hide from others and pretend, wrongly, pretend that everything is just fine. But I would argue that next to money, family may be the most revealing about what we actually believe. Parents, if the spiritual condition of your children is of any concern to you, how are you modeling that exemplary Christian life before them? Do your children see you gathering with the saints, singing the praises of the triune God every chance you get? Now, I want to insert something right here. There's a reason that we only keep a nursery up to age three. Because we're convinced, we're convinced that a four-year-old can learn a lot, basically, by watching their parents worship. No, they're not, they're not going to get a ton from the sermon. They may know that I talked about a hamburger in an illustration or something. They may come away with that. He said hamburger. That's fine. That's fine. But you know what they're going to learn? They're going to learn that the word of God is important to mommy and daddy. They're going to learn that singing praises to Jesus is important to mommy and daddy. That being with these people and showing the love that we have for one another, that's important to our family. A four-year-old will pick up all of that and some. There's a reason. There's a reason we encourage parents to bring their kids in here. By the way, if you have young kids, y'all are doing an excellent job worshiping with the saints. Excellent job. Do they see... Your disciplined life at home, parents? You know, as a young teen, I remember going through a stretch in my life where I fought going to church. Most of it was relational stuff, you know. I didn't like something my friends said, so I didn't want to go to church, you know. Y'all been there. And I remember fighting and fighting for some of those seasons. And I'm so thankful that though my parents didn't inject an answer every time they probably could have and explain why we do certain things. The one thing they were faithful to do, they were faithful to bring me to church. They were faithful to love the church. They were involved in the church. And I credit a large portion of God's grace in my view of the church today 
to the example of my parents. Those of you that didn't have parents that did that, I hope your goal is to flip the model for your kids. Not just your kids, but others. Those people around you right now. Parents, there's a lot of questions we could ask. Do your children hear you read the Bible? Do your children hear you talk about the faith on a regular basis? How are you caring for the souls of your children? And the reason I say that this next to money is a good indicator, I really think, families, I really think that if we were to ask the people that know you well, they would be able to answer whether you're doing these kinds of things in your home, whether you have this model. We need to know that the state of the family is highly indicative of the state of the church. Dads, I would tell you this starts with you. This starts with you last night at this reunion. Yeah, of course, the pastor goes to a 20-year reunion and has conversations about the church and the gospel. Uh, so you know. You know. I go out there and I talk about Jesus. <laughs> I was talking to one young lady who uh, uh, was, was her family kind of in turmoil about this church they've been going to that has Presbyterian practices. And, and so we got through all that. And I asked the question, I'm like, well, tell me, does, does your husband set the tone for the spiritual life of your family? And her response was, well, maybe indirectly. And she said, I wouldn't say that he's passive, but she couldn't really, she couldn't really express. And I know she didn't want to just really be honest and say he probably should take more of the lead. That's the state of many of our families. I remember a while ago, and maybe from time to time in our own family, that was the state of our family. I was not leading well, and so my wife is like she had to get behind me spiritually and push me into the lead. Now, I thank God for her role in doing that. But fathers, your family will never be healthy if you are not taking up that mantle of the father, setting the tone, setting the example for your family. Fathers, you will be held accountable for the spiritual condition of your wife. You ought to be washing her in the water of the word. Oh, my goodness. Floods. Floods of conviction. Your children who've been granted to you for the benefit of Christ's kingdom. How are you leading them? What is the state of your family? We live upon the gospel of God. Ourselves, the state of our souls. Our families, the state of our families. Thirdly, we seek lasting transformation after Christ. We seek lasting transformation after Christ. We often say... You've heard me say, what you behold is what you become. 
What you behold is what you become. Paul constantly in his letters sets up Christ as the object of our faith. The only one who can transform us to make us fit for heaven, to make us fit for eternity with him. And that's what we do for one another. We get off track. We get caught up in our circumstances. We get so narrowly focused in on whatever it is that's bothering us. And then that Christian comes along and says, hey, hey, turn, turn, your, turn your eyes to Jesus. Look at him. He will bring the answer. He will bring the transformation that you need. So Paul says right here in this text, he says, we proclaim Christ. We proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? I hope you feel just hammered by this phrase right here. So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now this presenting, this presentation, Paul says right here, it's the language of offering a sacrifice to God. Now get that idea in your head, like, like sacrifice. You're, you're taking one another, and, and before God, you're offering one another as a sacrifice. Don't go too far with that, obviously. We don't slaughter bulls and goats anymore. We certainly don't slaughter one another as sacrifices. That would be ridiculous. Christ, our atoning sacrifice, paid all that debt. He atoned for our sin. However, in the temple, the church, that, that building that's being built up, living stone upon living stone, that temple of the Holy Spirit that's being joined together brick by brick, that temple, that's where we offer our sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices we offer? The sacrifice of praise, the Romans 12 sacrifice of yourself, the living sacrifice. Offer yourselves a living sacrifice unto God. And then in Acts, Paul speaks of offering the people to whom he's preached the gospel and have believed the gospel. He speaks in these very same ways. Like he's taking them and presenting them to God as a sacrifice before him. So part of our ministry as God's temple and a priesthood in God's temple. Oh man, we could spend weeks and weeks on those two words. Temple and priesthood. Part of our ministry as the temple, part of our ministry as the priesthood is to in the end offer one another up to the Lord fully mature in Christ. You know, I feel bad for the folks that have given up on that. They've given up and they're not going to be able to celebrate with us in the end. When one of y'all's name is called from the throne of God and then all the saints that faithfully contributed to that person's growth in Jesus are celebrated to the glory of God. Hey, that's, that's, a, that's a picture that is too great 
to contain in the human mind. We seek lasting transformation after Christ. So I'll ask a few questions, and these are brief. What is the state of our relationships? What is the state of our relationships? You know, when people come to a church, believing or unbelieving, they may come for a number of reasons. Maybe they heard something. Maybe it's the closest church. I know some of y'all, it's not the preaching. It's just like, man, this is the first one I pass, so this is why I come here. Maybe somebody did hear about a sermon that was preached, and they show up. They come for a lot of different reasons. Maybe there was a, a program, or they had a real kicking band, right? They come for a lot of reasons. You know why consistently, you know why people stay at churches? Relationships. And I mean stay. I'm not just like... We're going to hang out until we get tired of stuff. No, I mean stay. They stay for relationships. And so, believers, if we see the aim as presenting one another mature in Christ, as we have spoken of, if we see that as the goal, then we're going to toil and struggle just like Paul did in relationships. You can't make a significant contribution to others' maturity in Christ by keeping people at arm's length. Now, does everyone have to be your best friend? Of course not. We all got to be BFFs. No. No. Y'all know BFF? Best friend forever. It sounds real cute. Real cute when you're, you know, a third grader, I suppose. BFF? No. But what relationships have you so invested that you fully expect on that day of judgment to see your relational labor result in praise to God? And I want to commend so many of our women. Our women are doing a great job in the life of the church because they're abounding in deep, abiding, personal relationships. And if you're a woman and you're missing that, all you got to do is talk to the right folks. All you got to do is talk to the right folks. You have deep, abiding relationships, and they're modeling. Our women are modeling for the rest of us just what discipleship should look like. So don't miss that. What's the state of our relationships with the state of our Discipleship. Now, it's not just good friendships that we're looking for, but relationships that do the dirty work of discipleship. And we could add to all these images. I've been studying images of the church lately, um, the temple, the priesthood, all right? Here we go. It's no wonder that the New Testament uses illustrations for the church that communicate hard labor. The expectation for the Christian is that you get your hands dirty in the work of making people more like Jesus. He said, Paul says, we are God's field. If we're to expect a harvest, then we must work as laborers in the field, seeding, planting, watering, and guess who causes the growth? God. We are God's field. 
and then to go with temple. We are God's building. That stone upon stone, living stone, connected to the cornerstone, being built up into the dwelling place of God. We're a field. We're a building. And then, as Paul tells Timothy, we're soldiers. We're an army. Dressed in Christ. Dressed in the new man. Dressed in the full armor that we may enter into that spiritual battle and have victory. So if your goal is to be presented fully mature in Christ and present others fully mature in Christ, then you have a part to play in making disciples. I'll answer the question like, no, you don't have all the knowledge you need for that. There are some people who just have the gift of knowledge. There are some people who have the gift of teaching. You may not have the gift of teaching, but here's our error in the life of the church. Here's a big error that we make. We tend to think of teaching or we tend to think of disciple making only in terms of information transfer. So you think, I look more like Jesus because I know more about the Bible, and that's it. And so that's why people come to the place and they can say, well, I don't need the church anymore. I got this dude on TV. I don't need the church anymore. I got this series of lessons or this personal Bible study. You get that personal Bible study. Almost as like you're on this one-man road to looking just like Jesus. No, that is so far from what the New Testament communicates. Here's, here's my point. If you're not a teacher and you don't have the gift of knowledge in the, in the, in the West, in America, you might start to think, well, I don't have anything to offer. All I got to do is sit here. But it's not just teaching and it's not just knowledge that makes disciples. It's the whole community. It's the whole body. That's why we need one another. That's why we need one another. It takes the whole body. You were here when we read Ephesians 4, 45 minutes ago. Ephesians 4, what did it tell us? The whole body. It takes the whole body to bring the members of the body to the, I love the phrase, the measure of the stature of of the fullness of Christ. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Does that sound like something that's just sort of going to end up in, um, well, hopefully I'll be a little better than I was before. No. It takes the whole body. And in the end, every one of you believers, including me, all those flaws Let's be honest. All those really, really undesirable blemishes, all that cancerous sin in our lives is going to be stripped away at the end. And God has prescribed the whole body to make that happen. That's why it goes on. He says, it's the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, 
It doesn't get any more obvious than this. Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, when each part is working properly, he says, makes the body grow. So I'm afraid that many of us, we severely undervalue what by God's grace we bring to the disciple-making table. So I would encourage you this morning, embrace your gifts, embrace your uniqueness, embrace those ways that you can shape others. ask another question here, a third question. What is the state of our mission work? Simply put, when Paul says that we may present everyone mature in Christ, yeah, it starts with the local church, but he literally means everyone. This is a guy who was relentless on mission. This is a guy who said, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because he poured out everything for the sake of the gospel. So he says, Everyone mature in Christ. He's including all those people who have yet to hear the gospel from our lips and repent and believe. So church, is our drive for mission so relentless that we're willing to leverage all of our time, our talent, and our treasure to see people saved and mature? And you say, all? Yeah, all. We go back to what we said last week. Well, I have a job, and I have this, and I have that, and certainly it's not spiritual. But do you not understand the gospel makes all of those things that we call from time to time secular, it makes all those things into tools to be used for the kingdom of Christ. You're doing yourself the mission and the church a disservice when you say, well, all this stuff is secular, and all this stuff is spiritual, That's a terrible way to look at your life. All of these things are being redeemed on the job. You're a missionary. You're a missionary. Your responsibilities are yours, Christian, for the glory of Christ in your job to your neighbors, and let's not forget, among the nations. Among the nations. Just as a note here, I know there are a lot of factors that go into a job. Why you work the job you have, the reason you stay, the reason you want to leave, all of that, all of that, we understand. I want to encourage you in that, continue to seek the Lord Because your ability to work is your ability to take the gospel somewhere where it may not be currently. I'll point particularly under mission here to evangelism. Sharing the gospel. Honestly, I'm amazed at the number of Christians I encounter that want their churches to grow but have little interest in actually sharing the gospel. 
Unfortunately, we live in a society where we think everything ought to come easy. And so it doesn't matter where people come from. As long as they're here, we're doing well. We're satisfied with sheep stealing rather than sheep reproducing. Are we satisfied with just trading sheep with all these other churches? We're never going to get anywhere because then it's just a rat race. Who can get the more, more of these people to show up at their building on Sunday rather than the other buildings on Sunday? That's, that's terrible missiology. Terrible. We want the church to grow. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. We seek lasting transformation after Christ. Finally, we're almost done, okay? We labor with the powerful energy of Christ. We labor with the powerful energy of Christ. Now, I'll use the word energy because that's the word in the text. It says right there, all his energy. So we're not going like new age on him. Oh, the energy that's in this room. No, we're not talking about that. I just feel your spiritual energy. No, no. Okay. Last week I suggested that our toiling and struggling in these matters cannot be done without the gracious provision of God. And that's exactly what this verse tells us. 29. So let's talk about what he's provided. I'll ask the question. The state of our energy. The state of our energy. With all his energy. Verse 29. Paul's not talking about calories here. Because some of y'all will think of your Christian life like the treadmill. Well, I just got to burn these calories, right? As if we just need to sweat a little bit more and burn a little more spiritual energy. No, it says his energy, that is Christ's energy. And throughout the New Testament, this is a word that's used exclusively to describe superhuman energy. Superhuman energy. In a couple of places, it describes the enemy's energy. But overwhelmingly, it describes the work of God among the saints of God in the local church. That's the context it's used in. Here's the point. You can't do the things that we have described all throughout last week and this week. You can't do these things by just burning your spiritual calories. You're exhausted. Some of y'all are exhausted. You're exhausted because you think you can. You're doing too much. It's chaotic. You're missing things, even important things. You're juggling and dropping. You got that Martha complex. Serving and serving and working and working and you're probably fighting bitterness. Stop trying to do it in your energy. Another energy drink, it won't help. Another energy shot, won't help. 
extra cups of coffee will not do it. You need superhuman energy. You need that divine power. I immediately think of moms. I look at mothers, Christian mothers, and the way that you pour it out for others. And I'm like, man, they can show us what it means to work in that energy of Christ. You don't have the privilege of giving up. So you have to tap into power supplies that don't come from you. But you need, Christian, you need that divine power. Paul was able to strike the balance between hard labor and faithful dependence on God. And that's, that's what we're talking about here. You task-driven folks are already like, okay, pastor, just tell me how to get the divine power so I can do all the things that I've heaped upon myself. It's not that easy. And it never is in the Christian life. But here's what I'll tell you. We're very close to the end. Stick with me. Here's what I'll tell you. Maybe you spend less time carrying the water and spend more time at the well. How about you set aside those dishes and stay longer at the feet of Jesus? Maybe stop slaving for a dollar bill and rest in Jesus, our Sabbath. Let go of trying to control your circumstances and hold fast to the word and prayer. Let's shift our focus on failures to the gaze of the risen Savior. Maybe we stop trying to gain the whole world, losing our soul, and instead we lose our lives, thus saving them. We put our hands to the plow, Christians. How about we quit looking back and look intently, eyes fixed, heart, soul, and mind engaged with Jesus, the author, finisher of our faith. Final question, connected right here, what's the state of our faith? We must live by faith in him. You want Christ's energy? You want the divine power? Then let's stop trying to become a giant in the faith and start having faith like a child. fully dependent on the Lord Jesus. Let the little children come to me. Good stewardship of the gospel brings lasting transformation through our divinely powered labor as you can tell, the state of the church causes me, and I hope it causes you, to ask a lot of questions. And as you've hopefully arrived at some answers, the final question, I suppose, is what needs to change?
You experience conviction about your family. You experience conviction about your money. You've had a whole week to change your practice. How's it changing? Parents, what's going to look differently for you this week to make Christ? The, the sum of all you do at your home. Time, money, your own soul, your family, relationships, mission, faith. Is there a measure of repentance and recommitment that needs to happen today for you? Additionally, today is the day of salvation. So would you testify today, maybe for the first time, publicly, your faith in Jesus Christ He stands ready to save you, ready to receive that childlike faith. Our labor together, church, oh man, it is far better, far more glorious than all the little things we tend to focus on week in and week out. Our relationships My goodness, the fruit of these relationships we're going to celebrate forever. And it's all because of God's grace. So may the Lord bestow upon us the kind of grace that Cedarview Baptist Church needs to see its members in the end presented fully mature in Christ, equipped in every way, built up in every way, all to the glorious praise of God. Let's pray. Kyle will be down front to receive you today if you need counsel or prayer. Let's pray. Father,